Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. So, who was it that said only in the Rocket City do we have a countdown to Bible class and worship? So, I like that. I love it. So, welcome again uh, to our midweek Bible study. Uh, If you're visiting with us, again, we want you to know you're an honored guest. As always, we want the opportunity to get to know you. We hope that you'll come back and be with us at every opportunity that you have. We're going to continue our class tonight. Call it Fortifying Our Faith. And the whole purpose of the class is to execute what we talk about in 1 Peter 3.15, be ready to give a defense for the reason of the hope that we have within us. So last week, we said that faith is a willful commitment to an informed intellect. It's not blind. It's based on evidence. And I like this term, and I'll use it throughout the class, rational belief. We have a rational belief. We can know that what we believe is logically sound because of the evidence that we have to support it. Now, the opposition, you know, I'm going to use that term, the opposition, just to mean anyone that would attack God and oppose uh, the Christian worldview, uh, oppose the morality that comes along with that. The opposition is aggressive, and they're busy, and they're constantly preparing, and then they attack. And so we have to be ready for that attack. We also have to be aggressive, and we've got to be busy, and we've got to no longer just sit on the sidelines and be unwilling to engage. You know, so many times, you know, um, we may see some in the Christian world take that approach, right? Well, I'm just going to kind of, you know, be like the lowly and humble Jesus, right? And I'll just shrink back and I won't say anything. You know, I won't try to defend my own beliefs. And, and that's not what we should do. Um, and so a weapon of opposition is the claim that the Bible has been corrupted. And that's what we're looking at. And, uh, you know, if you think about it, that's an attack on our evidence, right? Because the Bible is a primary piece of evidence that we have that we base our faith on. And so the opposition is attacking it and questioning its credibility. So we have to be ready. We have to prepare. We have to defend. So last week we introduced the topic uh, concerning the question, has the Bible been corrupted? And so we're working on our first defense mechanism is what I call it. And we're looking at the proof of the fact that the Greek New Testament text has been authenticated. So, yes, I'm saying that, that the Greek New Testament text has been authenticated. And so what our discussion is all about is actually setting out to prove that. And so we'll continue that tonight. Now, this discussion is very detailed. It is tedious. But it has to be done. And it has to be done in order to engage the opposition on their level. Because 
So many of them, right, are smart and intelligent, and we ought to believe those smart and intelligent people, right? Right? Not necessarily. So what we've got to do is we've got to engage them on their level. So if you'll hang in there, please hang in there with me. I think that you will see how beneficial this discussion can be. All right, so with that being said, we'll go ahead and get started. So what we're talking about is the transmission process, how the Bible got transmitted to us today, you know, what we have in our laps. How did that come to be? Well, as stated previously, early on, individual Christians would have heard the original it would have been copied then by individuals, and then other individuals would have copied those copies, and that would have continued on and on and on to preserve the text. And this continued for many years. And then in about the 4th century in the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire actually officially sanctioned Christianity as a officially sanctioned religion. And so the transmission of the text at that point in time would have taken on a whole new meaning. For example, there would have been commercial book manufacturers and they would have uh, been in the process of reproducing the text. Now, how would this have occurred? Well, there would have been scriptoria. Uh, A scriptoria is a special room where there would be trained scribes. There would both be Christian scribes and there would also be non-Christian scribes because this was a business, after all. And they would sit and they would listen to a lector. And so as the lector would read the text, they would actually write it down. And so you can see how this would actually begin more of a mass reproduction of the text as opposed to just one person copying one manuscript or a copy of the manuscript. And so this was uh, an effective way to, to speed up the process. Now, if you think about it, though, using this type of method perhaps would introduce error. Uh, how would that happen? Well, the error would come from listening. Uh, how many of you are good listeners? Uh, my wife would uh, probably uh, not, she'd tell me to put my hand down, in other words. So, uh, but, so anyway, you know, the listening, the hearing errors would have happened from a variety of ways, right? There could have been noise. Uh, most likely would have been the main issue. Somebody could have coughed. Uh, there might have been some momentary distraction. There might have been a word that they heard, and they heard the word and wrote down a different meaning or a different word. Uh, so there would have been errors from hearing. About the 5th century, another major, major change would occur in the transmission process. This would have been the time frame of the establishment of monasteries. So you would have monks living in these isolated locations, and they would take on the responsibility of continuing this copy process, making copies of the New Testament books. And they would work in separate cells with the intent of having less pressure applied to them. So the monks would work in an isolated way, but when you work in isolation, and maybe you can relate to this, you might have errors of what we call the mind, right? Your mind might drift. Does that ever happen to you? Never. Gary says never. Uh, If you're working in isolation, you might start daydreaming or whatever. So errors would have been made by the monks as they read a line to themselves and they wrote it down. 
Uh, also, there would have been problems with what are called physiological errors. In other words, um, posture. You know, it depends on how they were copying the text. Their body would have become fatigued because of the position that they may have been in. So they may have stood, they may have sat down. Uh, some of them actually may have been on their knees working on a scroll. And you can see how uncomfortable that would have been. So some errors, no doubt, would have uh, occurred from that. So what we're going to begin to do tonight, and we're going to try to get through this and try to move on into the next part of this, is we're going to look at the different types of errors that would have been introduced into the copying process. Now, I said errors. Does that bother you? Does it bother you? It does, doesn't it? I mean, just on the surface, it, it bothers you. Right? You're, you're claiming that uh, there are errors in the Scriptures. And so we need to carefully consider this, and we need to look at the process of how this might have occurred. So when we say that there are really no two manuscripts are alike, what do we mean by that? How do they actually differ? What kinds of errors might have occurred in a manuscript? Well, skeptics and the opposition, right, they make a big deal about this. And they make it sound as if there is actually no way that you can know that the New Testament today that you have is what would have originally been written. And that's really not true. It's simply not true. And so we're going to set out to, to try to prove that. So when someone carefully examines the errors then they can sort out exactly what happened. And so we want to do that tonight. We're going to, we're going to take a look at that process, and we're going to try to, to act as a textual critic and come to a conclusion about some of these errors. So the first broad category of errors that we're going to look at are what we're going to call unintentional errors. Now, this is the way that the, the scholars would actually uh, categorize these. So there are unintentional errors. And these are errors that were made accidentally by the scribe uh, as uh, he was making the copy. And then under this category, there are going to be several different types of errors. Uh, for time's sake, you know, we're only going to mention a few uh, for completeness purposes. Uh, well, we're actually going to mention all the categories, but we won't be able to give many examples because we just, we just don't have time. Uh, we're just, I'm, I'm trying to, to, to compress this and, and get it done in a reasonable amount of time. But here's the note, and you should always remember this throughout this entire class. The differences are detectable, okay? They are detectable by examining the mass volume of manuscripts that we had. Remember the chart that I showed you last week and the amount of evidence that we have? Way more than any other document in antiquity. And so this is very important to remember. The differences also do not impact any doctrinal matter. Okay? That's a very important thing that you need to remember. All right, so let's begin. So let's talk about the unintentional errors. Well, the first type would have been errors that are associated with the eyesight. So in this case, you would have had Greek letters uh, that look alike, uh, might have actually been substituted uh, in the wrong way because of that. 
Uh, you can have errors where there are two lines that can end in the same word or end in the same phrase, especially at the end of a page. And so if you have this situation and you're copying and you look up, then you might actually skip the words in between those two phrases that you're fixated on, okay? So this is what we would call an unintentional error made with the eyes, okay? Um, so sometimes a scribe's eyes would pick up the same words a second time, and this would cause parts of the text to be repeated, and this is known as dictography, and an example of this is found in the Vaticanus manuscript in Acts chapter 19.34. So Acts 19.34 says, But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And so what we find in the Vaticanus manuscript is that the phrase, Great is Diana of the Ephesians, is written down twice. Okay? So this is in one of the manuscripts. Well, that doesn't scare me because I've got a mountain of other evidence to go look at, right, to be able to get to the bottom of actually what happened. So these would be examples where an unintentional error associated with the eyes would be made. Well, what about the hearing? We mentioned that earlier. So we know that different words can sound the same but have different meanings. And so for, uh, for us English-speaking people, I tell people that I can barely speak English. I'm from the South. Um, and a lot of them agree with me. Um, for example, the word great, right? You have G-R-E-A-T, which means something different than G-R-A-T-E, right? So you have the same types of issues in the original text. Um, then you would have uh, things like vowels and diphthongs. What's a diphthong, Mark? Well... It is when you have a word that has the union of two vowels in one syllable, like boil, B-O-I-L, okay? That's a diphthong. And consonants, so you would have this type of thing uh, occurring and going on. And my Greek man is right here in front of me, so I can refer to him at any point in time that I need to. But here's an example from Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. It says, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So this is the rendering that we see in the King James and in the New King James. And then we see another rendering here. Unto him that loveth us and loosed us from our sins by his blood. That's the American Standard Version. The ESV further has the word freed. And so, lusante or lusanti, uh, you can see that these words right here would have sounded very similar, but they had very different meanings. And so this is another example of how an error could be introduced through the hearing. All right? Then we had the errors of the mind. All right, so what are some examples there? Well, the first one is substitution of synonyms. So a scribe would be reading and would be thinking about a concept, and instead of the word itself that was actually there in the text and to be copied, uh, that scribe may actually use a different word that represented the same meaning, right? I mean, you can, you can think of how this would be done, can't you? 
I mean, you'd be thinking about one thing and then seeing something on the paper and accidentally write down the wrong thing. Um, another example would be varied word order. Uh, some verses will contain certain words out of order, and so this may cause confusion, but it can be easily cleared up, again, because of the mountain of evidence that we have. We also see situations where letters would get transposed, um, and this would, this would obviously cause the meaning of words to change, and so therefore it would trickle down into the manuscript. So here's an example from Mark chapter 14, verse 65. And some began to spit on him, to cover his face, and to buffet him, and to say unto him, Prophesy! And the officers received him with blows of their hands. Now that's the American Standard Version and the English Standard Version. And then down at the bottom, we have the New King James and the King James that says the word struck him, and the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. Well, if you look at this and you look at the, what the scholars say, it apparent, uh, it's apparent that what happened is some letters got transposed. And so you can see, I'm not, the, I'm not the Greek expert here, but you can see that the meaning changes. And so the word struck is used in the King James and New King James, and the word received is used in the ASV and ESV. Now again, does this cause us a huge problem with doctrine? Does it, does it actually cause us to have a problem with salvation? The answer is no. Then there would have been errors where we have the assimilation of wording. All right, so what do we mean by that? So scribes who were very familiar with the wording of a certain passage and then were copying similar passage, passages, perhaps in a different book, might use the wording from their memory. Okay? Or from the passage that they are familiar with instead of the wording from the actual text under consideration. And so this might happen, or actually there's evidence that it happened quite frequently in the manuscripts from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Why would that be? They're the synoptic gospels, right? And so you can see where someone might be more familiar with one of those, and then they're actually copying the manuscript for a different one, and they just write the other words. And so this is another example of how this type of error could get introduced accidentally. All right? And then there's another unintentional error, errors of what we call judgment. All right? So one example of that is what we call scribal glosses or corrections. So if a scribe was very familiar with a passage, he might feel compelled to comment on it or to write something about it. And this would occur where the scribe would write out in the margin a small comment or a statement out in the, out in the, uh, the right-hand margin in the copy that he's making. And so we call this a gloss. So a gloss is a brief explanatory note or translation of a difficult technical expression, and it's usually added to a text by some later copyist or editor. And again, you can see them out here on the right-hand margins there. Uh, so these marginal notes would sometimes actually get incorporated into the actual text of the new uh, manuscript that was actually being produced, and uh, the scribe did so in order to avoid uh, losing some portion of the word. So perhaps the scribe was nervous that something in the comment 
uh, might be trying to tell him something and so he would actually incorporate it into the text. So this is an example of an unintentional error that we call a gloss. All right? Um, an example is in John chapter 5, verse 3b through 4. It says, In these lay a great multitude of infinite folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. And so this underlined section of text is the text concerning the moving of the water. And so perhaps there was some idea that there needed to be some explanation here. Now, if you go look in your ESV, you won't find John chapter 5, verse 4. You may find it footnoted. If you go look in other versions, you might find it italicized. Uh, And then in the ASV, I think, you'll find it footnoted. So this is an example of where this particular part of the text got injected in some manuscripts and got left out in some others. All right? So... The solutions of these errors are detectable. Okay, this is a key point. They're detectable. And when they are detected, we realize they're they're of no consequence of our faith. And there's no problem with the doctrine, the core doctrine of Christianity. Okay, again, that's something that we want to emphasize throughout throughout the class. So these are unintentional errors. So next, let's talk about intentional errors. Oh, Intentional error, that sounds even more dangerous, doesn't it? Sounds kind of fishy. Well, we don't mean that the scribe was being subversive, right? Was injecting error on purpose, you know, with some improper intent. That's not what we're talking about here. Uh, Many scribes thought that what they were doing was correcting an error that was made previously. Okay? And so they would be intentionally making a change. And um, so in doing so, they had good motives, right? Again, they weren't being uh, malicious. And so these errors can also be sorted out, and we can get to the bottom of them, and we can get to the origin of the errors, and we can actually uncover the truth. That's the point. That's the point to be made here. So under this, uh, this same category, we're going to talk about several subcategories, okay? And again, we're not going to have time to look at the differences or an example from each one because we just, we just simply don't have the time. But there are, there are many to consider. So let's, let's get to it. All right. So the first one would have been spelling and grammar. And so sometimes you would have a, what we would call maybe a style conscious scribe, uh, who would adjust what they considered a misspelling or what they deem to be a faulty syntax, or maybe poor grammar. Uh, now, uh, at my work, we have a documentation specialist. She's this, uh, this little pesky scribe who, when I write a piece of text, she's always got her pen out after me, right? So she has her preference on the, the certain way to say things, and, you know, she's usually right because she's an English major and I was a math major, so there you go. But this is the type of thing that we're talking about, right? Uh, so there would be errors, intentional errors of spelling and grammar with the intent of trying to maybe correct something that they thought was wrong. We would also have what are called harmonistic corruptions. 
Sounds very technical, doesn't it? Monks and scribes were very familiar with the text. In fact, many of them actually memorized the text and had it, uh, you know, just in their heart. Uh, So they were tempted to harmonize the wording of parallel passages. And so we can look maybe at an example from Luke chapter 23 and verse 38. And it says, And a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew, This is the king of the Jews. And of course, you, you understand the context here of where this verse is located. So many manuscripts have added these words in this particular book. Yet the evidence of them being there in the book of Luke is against them. All right, so how could this be? Well, again, this could have been an example of where a scribe knew what was written in John chapter 19, verse 20, which actually does say it was written in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek, and as they were copying Luke, would have just inserted that text right in there. Now, does it cause a problem for us that they did this? It doesn't, doesn't it? It doesn't. All right, so that's an example of harmonistic, you know, harmonizing those two writings together. It, in fact, they introduced a corruption in the original manuscript of Luke by doing so. Here's another uh, type of example or error, uh, intentional error, adding natural complements and similar adjuncts. Well, adjunct is nothing more than an added word or an added phrase. Okay, that's just a big fancy technical word for an added word or an added phrase. So scribes would sometimes feel that words were missing, and so they would add them. They would put them in the text. And of course, you know, later on when we talk about the the translation process, that's very important in the translation process, and many times when you look in your Bible that you have today, you'll see those words italicized, right? Because that will indicate to you that that word has been uh, inserted for clarity reasons, okay? All right, so um, scribes would also add words in contrast to other words, and they would do so in, in an attempt to make a passage clearer, you know, to be more clearly evident as to what was being talked about. So they would do these types of things as they were copying the text. All right, so another intentional type of error would be clearing up historical or seemingly geographical difficulties, all right? So scribes would mistakenly, many times, based on a lack of understanding, attempt to make a correction uh, as it pertains to this. So an example is John chapter 1, verse 28. The earliest manuscripts use the word Bethany, and later manuscripts, a lot of them use Bethabara. So you, you may want to look up John 1.28. You know, it's, it'd be very good for you to have the Bible in, in, your, in your lap and, and look at these passages as we're talking about them. So what happened here? Well, <clears throat> um, Origen changed the word Bethany to Bethabara. Let me go back. Am I going the right way here? I'm going the wrong way. Sorry. This is not my little doohickey here, so i got to get used to it. So... Oregon changed Bethany to Bethabar because he thought there was some geographical difficulty. Now, I didn't take the time to dig into exactly what his problem was there, but 
The fact of the matter is that you can go look at different versions today, and some do indeed use Bethany and some use Bethabara. But again, this is not a difficulty for us as far as doctrine goes or faith goes, right? Because we can detect these issues. All right, so another example is uh, what we call conflation. And what is conflation? Well, if a scribe had two or more manuscripts in front of them, and he was making a single copy based on these two manuscripts, and he found that those two manuscripts differed from each other, then what he would typically do is he would include both readings in the new manuscript that he was making. And so that's what we call conflation. And he did that with the motive of not omitting anything that perhaps might be the genuine text. Okay? Again, an intentional error that is uh, trying to overcome a potential mistake. So an example would be Luke 24, verse 53. Some manuscripts, earlier manuscripts, have continually in the temple praising God. Other early manuscripts have continually in the temple blessing God. So later, what we would find is that scribes would decide that the safest course would be to include both. And so the result of the conflation would be in the temple praising and blessing God. Is that a problem for us? It's not a problem, is it? It's not a problem. Do we have the inspired Word of God? We do. Because, again, we have the mass of evidence that we can go and detect these situations and get to the bottom and track our way back to the original text. And that's, you know, that's, that's just a preview of where we're, where we're headed. What's our time look like? Okay. All right, so next, there were doctrinal alterations. So... There would be disagreements sometimes among scribes and those who would claim to be Christians would sometimes cause the adjustment of the text to favor a particular viewpoint. Okay? Now, here's the point about this. Surprisingly, there's very little of this. And you would think, oh, this would be one of the major things, right? According to the experts, there is very little of this going on, and so you'll be happy to hear that. And in, in, in all of the wide distribution of the manuscripts that we find, there's very little of this going on. Well, there were typically two types. So either something would be eliminated or altered uh, that was considered to be doctrinally unacceptable, or something would be introduced in order to support a particular doctrinal viewpoint. So elimination or addition. All right, so an example. Matthew chapter 24, verse 36 says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. The best manuscripts include nor the Son. Okay? So what, what's happened here? Well, this phrase was probably omitted by scribes who could not reconcile the fact that Jesus was ignorant of his own divinity and his own ability to be able to determine when that day and hour would be. 
right? You can see where somebody might get stumbled up by that. Yet, in Mark chapter 13, verse 32, it hasn't, right? It actually has that text. So again, we don't have a problem here just because it doesn't say that in Matthew. It actually says it in Mark, and then we can trace that variation back into the original manuscripts and come to the conclusion of of the issue. Now, in this particular case, this is not a transmission or a translation issue, but rather it's an interpretation issue, right? That's what we're talking about here, because we have people who are actually taking the text and interpreting it in a certain way. We don't have that problem today, do we? So how is it that not all people see the same thing the same way, right? It's interpretation, and we'll, and we'll talk about that later. So one would have to actually study the Bible in totality to understand in what sense it was that Jesus didn't know the day or the fulfillment time of this particular passage. So that's, that's the point here. All right. So these are the types of errors and variations that we find in the manuscripts. There are both unintentional errors and there are intentional errors. So what we find, though, is that the vast majority of the textual variants involve minor matters. Okay, that's a key point that we need to remember. So do we have the New Testament? Yes. Has the Bible been corrupted? No, it has not been. And there are numerous credible scholars who have said this, we can confidently affirm that we have 999 one-thousandths of the original New Testament intact. The remaining one one-thousandth does not affect doctrine. Okay? It's very important to remember as we think about basing our faith on this book we call the Bible. We don't have anything to be ashamed of. We can defend it. And if we're prepared with knowledge and information, we can have confidence in doing so in, against those who oppose us. All right, so we'll go ahead and jump into the next thing, textual variance. So we've talked about these, these things that would cause the text to, to vary. So what we're going to find is that the, mass, uh, the vast majority, and we've already said this, really involve only minor matters. And the text is not going to impact our doctrine. And, and we've already said we have the text and the Bible is not being corrupted. Well, then how do scholars... Yes, James, I'm sorry. No, I know, I know that it was done. That's a good point. So what James is talking about is in some manuscripts, they would actually count the number of letters as they copied, and then they would add them all up at the end to make sure that everything was actually copied. Now, that wouldn't necessarily avoid error, right, because the actual text could be different. But I don't know the time frame. Maybe James might have an idea about time frame, but that is a method that was actually used. Thank you for pointing that out. Yeah. Now, it's, it's, it's kind of like what we would do today uh, in computer software, right? We send a message, you know, we do a checksum, and we validate it, right? We have some way of telling that, hey, the message that I actually sent to you is what I intended to send to you. And, and so it's, it's much the same way. Uh, very good point. All right, so we're going to move on and talk about these textual variants. So how 
did scholars distinguish between these textual variants? Uh, and, and what criteria would they have used to sort these out? Well, there are some general guidelines. Um, one would be this. Choose the reading that best explains the origin of the authors. And, you know, it may become self-evident, right? If you, if you look at it, then it may just be self-evident and you won't have to overthink it, right? Just let it, the text interpret itself. And then uh, the other way is we, uh, um, this, this becomes self-evident. So what we want to do is we want to take a look at how that process would work, and we want to actually act like a textual critic, and we want to see how they sort this out. So there's, there's two ways uh, to start off this process. One is to look at what we call external evidence. All right, so what would that be? Well, it would involve taking a look at the date of the manuscripts. When was it written? We've already talked about those manuscripts which are older are held in higher regard, right? Because the thought was that as you go back older, which is not necessarily true, by the way, um, it would be more accurate, but it would be closer to the original time when the original was produced. Then you would also need to consider geographical location. Where was it found? Where did it come from? Um, so you, you might have, well, did this particular text wind up in several diverse locations, or was this particular textual variant in one geographical area? And so what that would tell you is that there was an, a variant introduced in one manuscript, and that manuscript didn't actually travel very far away, right? It would, it would stay in this one geographical area. So that's something to consider. Then the other thing, and I think I mentioned this last week, is what the scholars call genealogical relationships. So some manuscripts may seem to contain the same textual variants. So it would just be duplicated, right? And so <clears throat> what would happen is you would have a family of variants. You would have like a, a line of variant that would travel down through this, this family. And, you know, I showed a chart last week of how that, that actually might happen. So that's external evidence. Then you would have... Internal evidence, and there's two types of internal evidence. So this first type is what scholars call transcriptional probabilities. Okay, so what, is, what does that really mean? Well, what it means is that there's, there's this way that they get to the bottom of the original text. So the more difficult reading is preferred, and what they mean there is the more difficult to describe. The shorter reading is going to be preferred except for these, these two big words here, paralepsies, which means that the text was actually deliberately shortened, and in doing so, it lost significant value in this meaning. Okay, that's what that big word means. And then this homeo teleuton, what that means is there are word endings that are similar or the same, and they're either intentionally introduced for rhetorical effect or by mistake, okay? And so, you know, just like a, a quick example of this would be silly things like the quicker picker-upper, right? Or, you know, this apparently was an old World War II saying, loose lips sink ships. Something you can actually remember, right? So somebody good with rhetoric or the ability to be very skillful in the way they use language might take some creative license with a manuscript and actually introduced those types of things. And so that, that may be a way that a variant came about, okay? Um, and then there might, 
be an, another way that we can look at this this way of, uh, of getting down to the bottom of where the variant is. Dissonant reading is preferred. So since scribes would tend to harmonize, if you find one that is outside of that harmonization, then you would tend to favor that. And then you would also have scribal tendencies uh, of themselves, and we've kind of mentioned some of this, you know, replace unfamiliar words with synonyms, add pronouns, add conjunctions, you know, like, like and, smooth out the grammar, you know, somebody who uh, maybe was a type A personality and just couldn't take the way the grammar was, you know, would, would, would try to correct that. So, so these are the types of things that would be internal evidence on how the variant got introduced in the first place. The other one would be what are called intrinsic probabilities. All right, so uh, what the author was more likely to have written, so there's a style, there's a vocabulary of the author um, in the book. And then there's the immediate context, and this is extremely important. The immediate context may have uh, a bearing on how the variant got introduced and how you interpret the, the, the variant that got introduced. And then there's the usage of the author elsewhere. So, uh, like, for example, in the gospel accounts, and then the influence of the Christian community on the transmission of the passage. So these are, these are some of the things that would be internal evidence as to how a textual critic would go through and would reason and would, would come to uh, the ability to select what actually should should be favored and put in their particular Greek manuscript that they were actually copying. All right, so now, what do we want to do? What we want to do here is we want to walk through this process. And thankfully for you, we're only going to do one verse. Now, if you choose to watch Dave Miller's video series, there's nine episodes, okay? And he goes through tons of these verses. That's why I'm telling you, the scholarship of that video series is well done, okay? And so I highly recommend it to you, but you're going to commit time to it. I can guarantee you that, all right? So what we want to do is get a feel for how this works and, and how we can determine if a text has been corrupted in the transmission. So how exactly do these textual critics do it? You know, we don't have to know Greek. We don't have to be Dr. James Andrews to be able to do this. We can do it, just normal human beings. Even, even people like Mark Bailey can do this. Uh, now, you have to spend a little bit of time to it uh, in, in digging in and looking at it closely, but, but yes, we too can get to it. So what we're going to do is we're going to go to a, a, Greek, a Greek manuscript. I, I have one here. If, if anybody has never seen a Greek manuscript, you can come take a look at it because we're going to illustrate that in class. But uh, I'm not a, I don't read Greek, but at the bottom, they, there's this thing called a critical apparatus. And so what they do there is they support in the critical apparatus how they arrived at the particular rendering in that Greek manuscript uh, considering all the variants. And it's, it's pretty cool. Uh, if you're kind of a technical geek like I am, you'll like it. Uh, you may not be excited about this, but what you can know is this. You can know that you know that you have the Word of God in your lap. That's why this is important for us to look at. So we're going to attempt to do that. We'll go ahead and try to get this process started. We'll at least introduce the, the verse that we're going to use, and then we'll, we'll spend uh, next class going through it. So our example we're going to use is Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And it reads, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs 
among the people. So the word we're going to look at is faith. And what we're going to find is that the New King James and the King James read, and Stephen, full of faith and power. And then we're going to find that the American Standard Version, New American Standard Bible, and the ESV, and many others say, and Stephen, full of grace and power. So the variant is there. Faith and grace. So this is what we're going to take a look at. Now, we'll go ahead and, and, and keep moving until the, the bell rings on us. So again, what I just showed you in the manuscript that I've got up here, you'll have a page in your Greek manuscript. You'll have the text at the top. Down at the bottom, you'll have this section called a critical apparatus. And what it does for you is in there, it indicates the verse, and then it has the manuscript evidence at the bottom. And so we'll stop there. And we're going to go through this, and we're going to parse Acts chapter 6, verse 8. There's four manuscript, there's four variants, rather, that we're going to go through. And we're going to be a textual critic. We're going to analyze and find out which one it ought to be. All right? Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.